Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. First up this week, thanks to all of you who have written in with memories and appreciations of Steve Roden. It's good to know he and his work are remembered with overwhelming fondness. Let me also recommend listeners to Pulitzer Prize-winning art critic Christopher Knight's Los Angeles Times obituary for Roden. It's a good reminder that even at home, major artists sometimes hide in plain sight. On to this week's program. This week, I'm joined by two artists from Entre Horizontes, Art and Activism Between Chicago and Puerto Rico at the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago. Those two artists are Edra Soto and Jose Lerma. Entre Horizontes examines the artistic genealogies and social justice movements that connect Puerto Rico with Chicago, which is home to the third largest U.S. mainland population of Puerto Ricans. Entre Horizontes was curated by Carla Acevedo Yates with Iris Colburn. It's on view at the MCA through May 5th, 2024. I'll introduce Lerma when we get to his segment. But first, Adra Soto. Soto's sculpture and installations prompt viewers to reconsider cross-cultural dynamics, the legacy of colonialism, and personal responsibility. Her work has been exhibited at the Whitney Museum of American Art in New York, in the 2020-21 El Museo del Barrio Triennial, also in New York, at the Contemporary Art Museum St. Louis, the Bemis Center in Omaha, the Perez Art Museum Miami, and plenty more. Earlier this year, Soto was awarded a U.S. Latinx Art Forum Fellowship. She is also the co-director of the outdoor project space, The Franklin. Edra Soto, after the break. Support comes from Getty, presenting the groundbreaking new exhibition, Alfredo Bolton, looking at Venezuela 1928 to 1978, on view through January 7th, 2024. Considered one of the most important champions of modern art and art history in Venezuela, Alfredo Bolton is shockingly underrecognized outside his home country until now. The exhibition explores Bolton from several angles, including his photographs of Venezuelan people and landscapes, connections to artists of his time, and his involvement in the development of art history in Venezuela. Experience the show in both English and Spanish, and enjoy additional programming, including a film screening and live jazz performance. Learn more and make free advance reservations today at getty.edu. Closing soon at the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago, Gary Simmons' Public Enemy is the first comprehensive career survey of the work of multidisciplinary artist Gary Simmons. Since the late 1980s, Simmons has played a key role in situating questions of race, class, and gender identity at the center of contemporary art discourse. Now, for the first time, through a major exhibition catalog and slate of related programs, visitors will gain a holistic understanding of the complex and profoundly moving work of this influential artist. The exhibition closes October 1st, so make sure to plan your visit to see Gary Simmons' Public Enemy at mcachicago.org. Fifty years ago, celebrated San Diego-based artist Eleanor Anton staged and photographed 100 boots on their cross-country trip from Solano Beach to New York City. A new exhibition at the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego includes the 51 postcards that document the boot's journey. Also on view is work by the collective My Barbarian, whose layered performances continue Anton's spirit of social critique and playfulness. Opening September 21st on view through February 2024. See Eleanor Anton and My Barbarian at the recently expanded Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego La Jolla campus. Plan your visit by going to mcasd.org. Robert Motherwell Pure Painting at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth is the first exhibition in more than a quarter century to examine the work of Robert Motherwell, a major figure who shaped post-war art. Offering new insights into his evolution as an artist and his impact on modernism, the exhibition is organized by guest curator Susan Davidson and features a selection of 56 visually compelling works from throughout the artist's career including 12 paintings from the Moderns collection. Although Motherwell was equally proficient as a collagist, printmaker, and draftsman, it is Motherwell's expansive sense of painting that this retrospective explores. Beginning with the abstracted figurative works that dominated Motherwell's first decade of painting as he emerged in the New York art world of the early 1940s, the exhibition highlights the depth of his 50-year career. Robert Motherwell Pure Painting at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth from June 4th to September 17th.
And we're back. Edris Soto, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Tyler. A foundation of your work since about 2010 or so is an examination of, and indeed an adaptation of, architectural details common in Puerto Rico. Facades, decorative fencing, panels that feature patterns that are often porous, that allow for ventilation and for visual permeability. You can see through them. And so one of these works, which we'll talk about in a minute, is at the MCA Chicago. What about these architectural elements first got your attention, you know, 10 or 12 years ago? I was thinking about, or I was trying to find a way of representing my migration. And in looking for forms of representing migration, I, I kept thinking about my home and the place where I grew up and this uh, gated neighborhood where I live all my life. I live a life that was very much simple and perhaps there were not many changes. I will, I will go from, from home to, to school and the school where I, I did my elementary and high school is, is not far from here, from the, the house where I grew up, where I'm right now, <laughs> actually. And the decorative elements that live in the houses well, I started becoming very curious about them. I was wondering if they had any meaning, where they came from. I also was curious about them because nobody seemed to know anything about them as a resident. You know, people that live in these houses that have these very prominent motifs and nobody seemed to know how to talk about them. So there's no populist knowledge about these residential decorative motifs. So for me to invest myself in an idea, to spend time with an idea and, and try to create an expression with this idea, I have to be convinced that I understand it enough and also fall in love with it, be certain that this feels right. The nostalgic component of the residential architecture is probably the most obvious thing. That's the thing that everybody connects with. Through research, I found information about the African influence in the design build and edification of Puerto Rico, which is something that is also not a part of the populist knowledge in Puerto Rico. When I think about my upbringing in Puerto Rico and how I receive information and how I learn about Puerto Rican culture, I think about television, I think about the media, and I think about radio because those were the you know, the mediums that were active at that time. There was no internet so and the newspaper. So these things were, you know, important, you know, how to learn about your your place, how to understand aspects of the identity of the culture. But then there's life after Puerto Rico. When I leave, I found that life in Chicago after studying and, and doing my master's in Chicago. My life became a, a series of comings and goings. There's a, there was a lot of traveling happening. And the experience of being away and then coming back provided a different lens and a, a different way of looking at the island, the things that happen and how the island is represented, especially for the tourist eye. So the experience of coming back and being at the airport and seeing the different representations of what the Puerto Rican experience uh, what that what is the promise of coming to this island to this paradise and the messages that are embedded in the advertising and billboards the prominent presence of military colonial architecture in this kind of tourist hub that is the, the airport and it is like the first impression 
And I kept wondering and thinking or asking myself why, why and who, who decides how your identity is gonna, going to be represented. And that also led me to think about the cultural relevance of the residential architecture, because these the decorative motifs live in the homes of lower and middle class people. And that will be the majority of the island, the population in the island. And these uh, houses that were built in the 50s and 60s are quite prominent throughout the island. Some are well kept, some are dilapidated, they're abandoned or empty. I think their graphic presence is something that continues to intrigue the people that live there and the artists, artists that continue to address them. But I've been inspired and motivated by these decorative motifs for over a decade. And during that time, early on, and finding this information, some insight about the the meaning of this and the and the origin of these decorative motifs lead me to expand an archive where it's not only me that the the one that is going to build the full meaning of of these motifs i i I'm not a scholar I didn't really imagine myself that my artwork it was going to be so invested in an idea because um that also can be intimidating so but also I was fascinated by what I could learn from the experience of being invested in this and and I I I still believe in the potential of it so I start inviting and commissioning experts in their fields like architects and historians and poets and even other artists to contribute to the archive of graft, which is a um, literary component and visual component that is uh, available for the public. It exists right now on my website in PDF form. There's a PDF section. People can go and see all the different literary contributions for graft. And the other archive will be my personal documentation, all the pictures that I take when I travel to Puerto Rico. And these will be images, uh, pictures that I take at the airport, of advertising, pictures that I take of the television here at home. Also documentation of the residential architecture and the life inside the house. And also documentation of Spanish military architecture. And it kind of expands to political propaganda that is, it describes the current environment of Puerto Rico. So I believe that all of these things inform the project because the project ultimately is about migration and decorative motifs have, have been, I think, a, a, a great complement but also very significant. Your website is a terrific and fascinating resource, and not only of, of your own work. We will have, of course, a link to it on the show page on manpodcast.com, and we will link to that PDF too, or those PDFs too. Um, they're available in multiple languages. So you've made graft works all over the United States for museums and art fairs and botanical gardens and all kinds of places. Are you interested in the idea that there's kind of a reverse imperialism or colonialism at work here? Instead of the United States mainland acting upon Puerto Rico, you're migrating ideas and forms from Puerto Rico into the mainland. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, art allows me to behave this way and play these little mind games, right? <laughs> I don't know how to what else to call it, but it, it is it is a little bit of a mind game. And I'm very aware I'm only I'm only one person. I'm this person and these are you know, these are very much 
of visual art propo proposals. But the fascinating thing to me about making site responsive work, which is why I think uh, graphs have been so generous and, and generative, like it just continues, but it's because a particular place have so many demands and for me to basically transplant graft into any any place, I have to consider not only the physical aspects of the space, but also the people that live in that place. And how do I create something that feels convincing to that and believable to that place, to that particular place? So for example, at the Chicago Botanic Gardens, which, which you have mentioned, I made a project that I titled Casa Isla or House Island, and that is an iteration of graft. So graft, graft itself, when I started graft and all the projects that I call graft, they are architectural interventions that really accommodate or complement, complement that as space. So all the all the early projects of graph manifested in windows. So I will I will place the decorative fences on windows to simulate that the 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 place was fenced, kind of um, mimicking the same, trying to make a representation of how the Puerto Rican houses are fenced. But when there's not that kind of interaction for me to complement a space with these decorative elements, I have to figure how I am going to integrate these elements to the site that I'm invited to create an intervention for. And as an artist, I love a challenge and I, I, it really motivates me to think deeply about how do I, how do I build something that feels convincing to that space, but also uh, don't compromise what I want to say with it. So that has been really fun, <laughs> really fun and really exciting as well. The Casa Isla was probably one of the most exciting projects I've, I've, I've done. And sometimes I feel weird about saying me and I, because uh, there's so many people involved in the making of something like that. The, Casa Isla was uh, 50 foot by 14 feet by like 30 feet or 40 feet wide structure that was literally floating in the lagoon of the Chicago Botanic Gardens. We have to consult a structural engineer to educate us and teach us how to make this structure float. And we have to build a raft and this raft was uh, made in wood. It was kind of magical <laughs> because it really kind of felt like it. When you see something kind of leveling to the water to the point that it, it disappears and the structure feels like it's sitting on the water. To achieve that, it was just really exciting. <laughs> and then another part that I really love about that project was looking for an element that connect the structure to the place. So I asked the Botanic Garden if they could lend a tree that could be the center of the sculpture, which they did. They lend us this shrub that is very common in the lagoon. Uh, they, you can see many of them throughout the, the lagoon at the Botanic Gardens. And it was, uh, my husband called it uh, like a Char Charlie Brown tree because <laughs> it was completely <laughs> naked. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, my God, what they have given me. Or it became naked. <laughs> it was it was bare. It had no leaves, nothing. Uh. It was just the branches. But this thing, in the four months that it was sitting at the garden, at the lagoon, it, it bloomed and it, it bloomed fully. It was just unbelievable. <laughs> I felt I felt really accomplished. <laughs> but 
like I said, it's, it's the labor of so many people and people that were so receptive to my ideas and visionaries in their own right for finding solutions to, you know, <laughs> this kind of unorthodox <laughs> forms of working. That's a really awesome piece. We'll have images on manpodcast.com, of course. One of the forms that graft works can take is the form acquired by the MCA earlier this year and, and, and in the exhibition, and that's the form of a bus stop. Why were bus stop forms or Puerto Rican bus stop forms of interest? Like the residential motifs, the bus shelters are something that is quite prominent in the island. Each county in Puerto Rico have a particular style of bus shelter, you can find a really wide variety of these bus shelters that are made with different materials and different styles and have different motifs integrated to them. Some of them have integrated the decorative motifs that you can, that are a part of, of the residencies in Puerto Rico as well. But the first time that I brought in bus shelters uh, for the project graft was for one of the first iterations which traveled from from a gallery in Chicago that was called Sector 2337 to a place called Cuchifritos, which is in New York in the SS Street Market at the Lower East Side. And that was my first significant exhibition of graft where I had an intervention with the decorative motifs on the windows of the galleries. And inside, I had these bus shelters. And my motivation to integrate the bus shelters were for people to have a place to sit, to read. And this project also had a series of publications that were printed in newspaper style. They were produced by by Sector 2337. And they had many commissions of collaborations of literary contributions. So my reasoning for adding the bus shelters were to give the public, the visitors, an excuse to sit and read this um, information and, and learn further about the intentions of the project. One of the things you've done with the graft works in recent years is you've brought other things into the physical form. So for example, you've built photographs into the work, such as for a graft work installed at the Museum of Contemporary Photography in Chicago, or for a work you made for El Museo del Barrio's Triennial, or work for that matter at the Whitney Museum of American Art in, in New York. I think that was earlier this year. And so one of the things that putting photographs on or into the work does is it encourages a viewer or invites a viewer, even requires a viewer, to walk up to your works and look at and look through them. A whole lot of your works, especially in recent years, do this. They require a viewer to physically do something to see or see through or almost even be in the work sometimes. So I think two questions. One, why were you interested in making photographs a part of the work? And two, what about making, air quotes making, a viewer physically go up to, engage, look through the work is of interest to you? Well, as I explained, graft is site responsive. So I, I do have to consider the site where the intervention or the architectural intervention is going to happen. And when I have to make graft or in intervene a gallery space, for example, which is a, a gallery tends to be a, a white cube. There's, there's not a lot of elements, architectural elements to react to. So when it is a white cube, I, I found myself just thinking how do I make this interesting? And I think in that moment, I kept thinking about my personal archive, all these pictures that I've been taking for years. I'm quite a compulsive 
photographer. I don't even like to call myself photographer, but I like to take pictures. And I take all the pictures that I are integrated in the in the graph series are coming from my my phone. Uh, so there are pictures that I take with my phone during my travelings. Some pictures happen quite fast. I could be in a in a car from one place to another and I I see a banner and there goes a picture. So that is very important. This this became a tool for me to record my my visits and my experience and I only start imagining how this work when I I find myself at this gallery trying to make an installation and I kept looking at the fence against the wall and I kept thinking what if I open a window through through the pictures and so the the photographs became a window for this the space and this was a really it was a great moment because uh, I feel that uh, it is so important for me to give something through my work and when it doesn't feel that uh, people take away anything or not much I feel like I just didn't do my job and that's just the kind of artist that I that I am I want people to take something with them and not like a physical object, but a memory and experience. And I soon enough discovered that integrating the photos in this, you know, the negative spaces of the, the decorative shapes, it did something, you know, it, it really allowed me to design the experience of how you navigate a work of art you go in, how you look at this and how close you can get to it and use the, uh, the act of piercing through it and building a narrative with all the different pictures that are integrated in the viewfinders is also is also a part of it. Well, I, I have done this project at, at multiple places, but perhaps the, the work at the Whitney Museum was one of my favorites because at that point, you know, I had been doing this project for over 10 years. And I was ready to just give it my best. And I just thought about all the elements that I could include in the project that will guarantee me that people will get close to it, that they won't miss it, and that they, that they will take something with them. And I, I kind of think it did. <laughs> it was really satisfying for me to just sit in a bench in front of the work and and see people how people were looking through it i made it very tactile so people you know people could touch it and that's always a complicated thing you know there's so many rules at a museum but it's just the nature of like uh, the work that is destined to be approached and get close to it's just an, another another form of that that was available and that I didn't mind at all people on the opposite. I'm happy that people touch it. And then positioning the these viewfinders at different levels is it just you can see how invested people could be in the experience and how much they want to see. The first time I did this experiment was at an art fair for that uh it was an invitation by Luis de Jesus to be a part of Untitled Art Fair. And he asked me if I could do a a graft fence for the facade of the the booth. And you know, art fairs are places where things things are going to be missed. <laughs> <laughs> Many things are going to be missed at an art fair. Unless somebody is like crazy like me, you'd be like, I'm gonna go to this art fair, I'm gonna look at everything. I'm going to stay like five hours <laughs> just trying to see all I can. But, you know, but every single time I, I stand in one place and I look at people looking at things and it's just so easy for people to miss anything, everything. It's like you're looking at the winds, <laughs> like, where do I go? What is important? So everything I take in consideration, everything when I make an architectural intervention, 
from the place, the space, the, the, you know, you arrive to a place, perhaps you're not, it doesn't translate. You cannot read that, that, that what is in front of you is, is art and, and you keep moving forward. So these have happened to me with graft, you know, some of the larger graft pieces that I've, that I've done in the early iterations uh, that people ask me, so where is, where is the work? Oh, it's right. It's in this very large window right here in front of you. Oh, (laughs) and that I, I just, I was thinking this is not, it kind of uh, do what it has to do. That's the nature of this type of, you know, vernacular type of architecture is, not meant to be contemplated. So to build a narrative and a reflection, I needed I needed to really meditate and see how I can take this further. So at the art fair, it was um, a challenge. I exposed the viewfinders to have this kind of awkward, weird apparatus sort of uh, at sight, so people could actually be curious about what is this and turn around and and see what was embedded and it it did work really well. So uh, that gave me some confidence to pursue it. It's really fun to see people invested in it. And also it's really moving when I get messages from people telling me how, how connected they felt or how moved they felt or how much this remind them of their abuelita home. There is a great page on your website documenting people's responses to the work installed at the Whitney. Um, The page includes the ways in which people included your photographs on Instagram. Anyway, we'll we'll have a link not only, you know, we'll have an image not only of the Whitney work on manpodcast.com, but we'll have a link to your page on it because it's, it's a delight. The MCA exhibition also includes a work of yours called Tropical American. It's from 2015. Yeah, 2015. And I think you first made it at a Rauschenberg Foundation residency in Captiva. It features flags, including a modified U.S. flag, a modified Puerto Rican flag, a modified city of Chicago flag. Artists have been have made work using the U.S. flag to raise all manner of questions about the U.S. project since at least World War One. And and you're doing that here in a way that effectively puts the other two flags on kind of visual and architectural, they hang at the same level, par with the other two flags. Why did you put those three flags together? I put the three flags together because they they represent my place of birth, my home, my new home, and my relationship with the United States. I was motivated to do this these flags when I was at the Rosenberg residency because as you know you know this is a tradition that Rosenberg have em- embraced as well. I think I never thought that I would approach art in that in this particular way to to create something that is is part of something that is a conversation that is already established. And all I have to do is like, I'm going to make my version of this. But at the time, I think there was, this was not in vogue. This was not something that people were doing. Maybe the way that they kind of exploded like 10 years ago where everybody was making flags. It was not the case at that time. But there was, um, there's always something happening in Puerto Rico. There, there was some political manifestations that were kind of very public and and sort of a part of the environment at the time. And I just kept thinking about if I was reassessing this relationship, how do I make a representation of it? So living at at, at the Rosenberg residence in Captiva, there's a, a really or there, I don't know if still there, but there was a really gorgeous man-made trail that I have to either walk through or take my bike or bike through it every day to go from from the dining area to uh, to my studio. And it was a man-made garden 
with this really amazing collection of tropical plants. So I think my mother was an avid collector of plants, a lot of tropical plants. She had a great green thumb. Even my the flowers that I that I hold for my wedding, my mother grew them in a in a tree in the backyard. She grew all these orchids <laughs> that the day before the wedding she started plugging out and making these flower arrangements. <laughs> she was incredibly talented in at all levels. These flower arrangements were so beautiful and perfect. I think her passion for plants and looking at this man-made garden, it just resonated to me. I'm also the neighbor in Chicago. I'm the neighbor of the Garfield Park Conservatory, which have an amazing tropical garden. So I guess it reminded me of home. And I kept thinking, I think, I, I think I'm going to just do this. I took a few leaves and I, I start making... I start weaving them, cutting them, collaging them. And I start thinking of other traditions that are associated with flag making, like quilt making and things that are, you know, fiber arts. And I kept thinking, well, it is not quite like it. it and I'm using a, also technology to replicate the shapes and such. But it is my form. And at the time... Also, like uh, this technology of printing on silk was fairly new. And at the Rosenberg, they recently received a series of uh, fabric rolls that you could print whatever you wanted on, on them. And they, when I, when I did my prints or my, my images to be printed, I, I always thought of them as, as work on that were was going to be printed on paper in a very large scale and which I did but also they encouraged me to to print them on that fabric that was you know new technology at the time and I did and they turned out beautiful I did a limited edition of them maybe uh, maybe two at the most and they became uh, I think people really connected to them and uh, they were shown at many places, uh, they were they were really in demand. Uh, when uh, after I made them, people ask continue to ask me about them. They wanted to show them, and I think people were interested in the conversation that the conversations that arose from from them. Among the uh, many places Tropical American has ended up is in the MCA's permanent collection. It's been there for a couple of years, and it will continue to live there after this particular exhibition. Edra Soto, thanks so much. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much, Tyler, for inviting me. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, presents Lyle Ashton Harris, Our First and Last Love drawing together photographs and installations from both his celebrated and lesser-known series, the exhibition charts new connections across the artistic practice of Lyle Ashton Harris, who was born in the Bronx, New York, in 1965. The exhibition explores Harris's critical examination of identity and self-portraiture while tracing central themes and formal approaches in his work of the last 35 years. Lyle Ashton Harris, Our First and Last Love, on view at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University from August 24th, to January 7th, 2024. The Manil Collection in Houston, Texas presents Hyper Real Gray Foy, now through September 3rd. Between the 1940s and 1970s, American artist Gray Foy created a body of extraordinarily meticulous graphite drawings. The exhibition at the Manil spans the entirety of Foy's career, from his early surrealist compositions to his later inventive botanical and geological renderings. The show is on view at the Manil Drawing Institute. Find details at manil.org. The Manil Collection is always free. Welcome back. Next up, our second artist from the MCA Chicago's Entre Horizontes, Jose Lerma. Lerma is a painter whose work blends the historical, the autobiographical, art historical, and mythological 
often through portraits that suggest, or even name, specific individuals, while pointing to how much of their public personae are manufactured. Simultaneously riffing on European portraiture traditions and popular representation, his work is smart, funny, and always painterly. The Kemper Museum of Art in Kansas City, the Museum of Contemporary Art Detroit, and the MCA Chicago have all presented solo exhibitions of his work. Jose Lerma, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hi, thank you. Your 2023 painting, Dorothy, presents a human head in profile. Profile is an early renaissance and earlier, for that matter, much earlier, mode of presentation. And so it's a painting at monumental scale. The kind of scale at which you work is, is, is a particularly new and contemporary thing. And we're going to talk about all that. But before we delve into that picture and more, who is Dorothy? And through whom does she have a relationship to Puerto Rico, comma, sort of? <laughs> so Dorothy was a, a model and an actress in the 19th century and was quite popular in London. And she was Friedrich Leighton's favorite model. The reason why I painted her is because she is the model in a painting called Flaming June, which is right now, by mere coincidence, is in the, uh, in the Met because the museum that owns it in Puerto Rico had um, structural damages due to a, an earthquake, so it's traveling. But it's a crown jewel of the Puerto Rican collection of that museum. The reason why I painted her is because she's uh, perhaps the most famous painting in terms of attracting tourism. Maybe not the most famous painting in Puerto Rico, but the most in terms of attracting outside interest is the most famous painting in Puerto Rico. So the most famous Puerto Rican portrait is of a person in London who has no connection to the island. And how it got here is quite interesting because a lot of those pre-Raphaelite paintings and Victorian paintings were extremely out of favor at the end of a kind of high modern period. So late, late 50s, early 60s, these paintings were going for very little. As a person who was going to become governor in the 70s, a wealthy man and went, went on a buying spree in Europe and bought a lot of these paintings for very little. The equivalent of, I think Flaming June went for the equivalent of $2,000 in today's money. And there was a whole haggling thing that was even more ludicrous. But this is how, uh, how unappreciated these works were at the time. I found them interesting because of its relation to it's a kind of a colonial pillaging in reverse. And so I like that situation. And those are the situations I'm attracted to. It's because it highlights the initial injustice, but then there's a kind of twist that's always more interesting. It's kind of interesting when the periphery appreciates the values of the core to the extent that then the core realizes, boy, we had something great here. <laughs> so your painting, Dorothy, is only air quotes, only the head of a woman. Right. Was your primary attraction to Dorothy as a subject, the woman in her painting, her potential or kind of much discussed potential relationship with Leighton, or was it entirely within the kind of reverse imperial history of the object that you just described? For purposes of the exhibition, it was the, the, uh, the reverse imperial history, as you mm -hmm. mentioned. But of course, the painting is problematic the original painting beyond that for, for many, many reasons. And it also has a lot of virtues. I mean, it's kind of hard to, to judge that work outside its time, or it's very easy to judge, judge it harshly. For me, the, the question with these things is always doing research so I can find a way of creating this kind of empty profile that then becomes a play for, for a, you know, interesting formal the formal play, which is really what I'm attracted to with these things. There's always a backstory. So there's always a kind of a struggle between the concept and in this case, the, the politics, which I think in these paintings, they come in before the formal, but in most paintings, it's the other way around. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I was attracted, attracted to the backstory. I think making commentaries about the, um, you know, the pre-Raphaelites or something like that wouldn't be, uh, it's only interesting because of, of this, this strange fact that this museum happens to hold the biggest collection of pre-Raphaelite paintings outside of London. And it's in a place that has, bears no relation to the place, to the original place. Why does the profile form interest you? Because it has interested you for a while and interested you a lot. I mean, I suppose I, I've been doing it for so long now and in so many uh, 
iterations and styles. Which it started with a lot more expressionistic and then cartoonish and then playing off of the plasticity of exaggerated features and, and caricatures. And now it's moving to something that's much more superficially realistic, but at the same time more empty and much more like painting a sculpture or painting a mannequin. So it's this thing that's kind of devoid of life. It's a lot more like painting a still life of a portrait. And it's something that I'd started doing a while ago when I started doing these paintings that were paintings without likeness. Then it evolved into something that had likeness, but it was mostly a portrait in, quota in quotations because all it, it just gave you enough of a reference so that you in this age, you can access the strange stories behind these things. And then the stories would essentially bounce off of political issues or history. So it was never addressing a political issue directly or a historical issue directly. There's always an oblique way of getting to it. Is there an art history of the profile as a form that interests you, or is that history incidental? Well, it interested me initially because of coin and commemorative coins. I think that's where the, uh, the initial interest started. At the beginning, I was doing the frontal sort of mugshot thing also. Yeah, there's a long history of that. I think uh, the Piero paintings of the Duke of Urbino are sort of a basic reference for a lot of people that are doing silhouette-style paintings and and the sort of play on coins. I've always had a an interest in social sciences, and I studied political science, and so I have a, a, an amateur interest in painting people like economists, and and often you end up painting coins for that reason. One of the core elements of your practice, kind of going back a decade or more, is that you take something, in this case a painting trope, and alter it in ways that presents it as almost absurd. You know, within sculpture and installation work, there was a project you did for the, I think it was Mocha Detroit, wherein you presented like a mini art Basel uh, in ways that were um, as absurd as art fairs are. But in this case, you, you are using these giant so in paintings that are many feet high like eight feet high you're using giant swaths of flat color to maybe less build portraits than to build references to portraits so detail as i think we've both been hinting at without maybe explicitly saying detail is replaced with a certain divisionism color meets color but only barely coheres into the recognizable do you think of, and I mean this in the best possible way, do you think of these pictures as absurd? And is that uh, framing valuable or important? I always tend to push a medium into the sort of the edge of, the, of another medium. It's never, it's always about kind of paintings that are, are almost sculptures or, as I mentioned before, portraits that are still lives or uh, that that's that idea always of, of always pushing them in terms of these yes i mean i i wanted to make a i wanted to make a study essentially a, a large portrait that had all the inherent qualities of a very small quick study all the elegance and all the uh, inelegance of that so you have to make it in an abbreviated form and uh, you have to use materials so that the, the density and the thickness of it are also addressed. It's not just that it's a large portrait. And I think this is key. It's a portrait that makes you feel small because all the elements mm. are enlarged. And when that happens, I think there's a psychology to it. It might not be in the portrait, but it's in your relationship to it. You feel smaller. You feel more vulnerable. And you also feel, because of the materials I use, which are kind of rubbery and matte and feel like very much like a toy, like almost like toys. They have the texture of toys and inviting. And so you feel more childlike, I hope, in approaching them. So, I mean, to me, that th those are absurd when you look at them. <laughs> because in terms of depicting something, I could have done it in a far more, um, there are ways that are far easier to do this. Uh, if you see the um, the mechanics of doing this, it's it is absurd. I mean, I, I use I mix the paint in buckets, and they weigh many, many, many pounds. So each color, it's a slab that might weigh I don't know ten pounds or something like that. And to move the paint is a real challenge. They're painted horizontally because they're they're so 
they're so unwieldy. And they have to be on top of that painted extremely fast because the materials start drying almost immediately as you set them. So all these things added, yeah, they make them for a very ridiculous. It is not the romantic guy in a studio like, <laughs> <laughs> sort of staring into the thing and smoking a cigarette. You're moving real fast. What are you using as a brush or brushes? I convert essentially brooms in order to, so that it has the same give as it would a brush, but blown up, you know, 20, 30 times. So I use these brooms that I sometimes snap together into larger brooms. And so that's the idea. Imagine making a portrait in 10 brush strokes, but then that portrait gets magically blown up with all its elements. And, and that's basically the idea. And, and to me, it's all about what happens when you're viewing this up close and you're treating it more like, you know, you're a fly on a surface. So you're, you're addressing it more in a, like a, with a certain verticality or like a landscape. I have read you talk about using a minimum of brush strokes in other interviews. Is that, did that become important to you because of the mechanics of working with the materials you just described or for a more kind of theoretical or conceptual reason? Before I was doing this, I, I work in series. My previous series had a very, very dense drawings that were, uh, that would take me months to do and I was doing them with a converted airbrush to make them look like doodles that you would do in an office but they were you know 20 feet wide or something I suppose when I was I I already had a an encounter that sort of clarified this moment as a bit of an epiphany and I was looking at a painting by Jerome I think it was in the Museo de Orsay I was and this was in 2006 and I saw this painting when I look at little figures that were standing at the edge of the painting in a balcony. I photographed those. And I just looked at them. Oh, these were made with like three brush strokes. And wouldn't mm -hmm. it be great to have? So I had that idea for a long time. I just didn't have the physical space to realize it. I was painting in Chicago in a small place. And to make these, these paintings, I need a lot of, you know, I need to have access to like a lot of water and, um, and a place to make a real mess. You can't have the normal piping system because it will get clogged immediately. <laughs> yeah. So I'm painting outside and I'm able to realize these things that I thought about for a few years. Basically, a lot of how I end up painting is dictated by where I'm at and the conditions of the place. I moved to Puerto Rico, bought a house like four years ago, but I moved one, maybe one and a half year ago, two years ago. And uh, that's when this series were fi was finally able to start. You mentioned a moment ago that it's important to you for a viewer to be small in front of one of your pictures. I suspect that's as true of pictures in which you present more of the figure than just the head, such as paintings you, know, you made going back into the early 2020s. Why do you want a viewer to feel, to feel small? I don't. I mean, but I do like the idea of, the viewer may be feeling a little vulnerable in front of the image. It's a different viewing experience, I suppose, than looking at a normal portrait that might be one-to-one -one or smaller than that. Yeah, I mean, there are there are many painters that work like that, that do these big portraits. I mean, Chuck Close comes to mind. And a lot of the uh, young painting, there's there's many people that make these sort of monumental portraits. And, and so, like, Soviet realism social realism you've had mm -hmm. enough of that i suppose the the vulnerability part comes with also with a kind of a inviting part to it and a disarming aspect to it where you can enjoy it as well so to me it's about presenting you with a, a way of viewing the thing as an image and viewing it in, up close as something else perhaps as a landscape perhaps as a as pure paint so you're constantly sort of drifting back and forth between image and abstraction. The paint, the the head, in in a sense, is uh, it's there to hang paint in a rational form. I think when you're painting, when your work is so driven by material and process, it's so expected of one to be to just be an abstract painter because that's mm. that's the bread and butter. So to me, that's a way of kind of extending the uh, read on something, making it a little bit more complicated. Which begs the question, why did portraiture interest you in the first place? 
I think from the beginning, I, I was doing the very first paintings I made were of um, dictators and sort of notorious people as babies. So I found images in books. This is there was there was internet, but it was easier to find stuff in books. This is in early two thousand, and I painted uh, dictators as as children and as babies, and famous painters, famous politicians as babies. Already, I was trying to look for some connection to the social sciences in my work, but I really wanted to paint something, and so portraits from the beginning were part of what I was doing. That developed into a practice that I I go, I so I do these site-specific works or site-responsive works where I travel places and I make work with whatever is there. And I do portraits as well. So um, I have this bifurcated practice where I always end up going back to the portrait and then back into maybe something closer to a post-studio practice that might be driven by painting somehow. I think one of the things a lot of your work does is it, I don't know if undermines is the right word, but let's let's stick with it for the moment, is that your work undermines constructions around the racialization of skin tone or skin color. Is that a goal or an intent, or is that a byproduct of kind of the flirtation with dalliance with abstraction you mentioned earlier? I suppose... A- I mean, I've always painted people that are, that were sort of be historical characters, and uh, some of them, I, the the skin tone might have been sort of it's already part of the uh, the formula. In recent works, I'm painting a lot of people from Puerto Rico, a lot of friends. I'm trying to get a, a, a at the meat of the question. Perhaps you can expand a little bit on that. I mean, one of the things about a lot of the portraits going back many years, going back to like the late 2010s, is that you aren't making any attempt to naturally paint your subject's true skin tone or skin color. You're selecting and using color that is useful, if you will, useful to you for your purposes. And in some ways that could point to highlight even the way in which skin tone and skin color has been racialized since at least the 18th or 19th century. Or it could just be that formally you find futzing expectation to be interesting as a formal device. It seems to me that there are a lot of different reasons that you could refuse to be true to the skin color of a person or a person in a given painting, and you choose not to. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, I suppose it's a bit of both. Mostly, I think in the end, the uh, the primary driver behind these paintings is more about formal pleasures. I have addressed that in the past. It's a problematic thing, but mostly I try to just paint the uh, in, in this series in particular the people around me, and I try to stay if not faithful, somewhat faithful to what's happening. Within limits, I mean, of course, uh, and and things get addressed in in strange ways because there's always a kind of there's a light source that's coming from the back of the person and that obscures the face and and so the skin tones are vary greatly because of that. I suppose it's a uh, it's making the the painting work. I think it reflects that it's a. It's a multiracial society here in Puerto Rico, and and uh, everyone, I, I feel like it represents a kind of um, cross-section of people around here. And a lot of them are also, uh, you know, composites made up of two or three people. So it's not, uh-huh. uh, they're not strict portraits. Because again, to me, it's about the, the final image. It doesn't have to be a faithful representation since I'm not painting historical characters anymore. So to me, there's a kind of flexibility to address that. So one of the things about your approach to skin tone that interests me is that a single figure can have multiple skin tones and in, in, in your work and in ways that don't necessarily relate to, say, Caravageism and how light falls across different parts of the skin differently. So for example, in Dorothy, her neck or part of her neck 
is a different color, like a, a noticeably different color, and really, for that matter, has a different topography than the rest of her face or the rest of her neck. And it seems like something you're mindful of without it being the subject of a work. Right. I think in a painting like this, there's a there's an overwhelming a sense of, I mean, there's an implied whiteness to the picture because of its colonial roots, because it's, um, yeah. it's, it's, it's situation in its time and the kind of models that, that, uh, were used. Uh, the early, the early pre-Raphaelites made, made a leap from making religious paintings with sort of, uh, the local models for which they use, of course, the pre-Raphaelite redheads and, and then into something a lot more that reflected the time and the place of Palestine, biblical times. And that was interesting because it was a search for perhaps the realism of the skin tone attached to the real biblical stories. What happens here is that you have a, the most representative painting of a place being someone that in no way represents, or the most representative portrait in a way that in no way represents the country. And that's still interesting because of, of the situation in which it came to be in the island. And and the fact that it re- sort of represents an aspirational moment in the island mm-hmm. when they could finally open a museum and have, you know, this big European collection and specialize in something, even if it was something that wasn't appreciated in Europe. For some reason, we have these sort of abundance of redheads <laughs> from the from the eighteenth century in Ponce, Puerto Rico. And that's that's interesting in and of itself. And as far as the painting, yeah, I mean uh, it is painted in a way that it it provides a you know, there's a light source usually from the back. So it, it almost feels like theatrical lighting in that it's it's being shined from from way back in a place and the actor has its face not towards the audience but towards the back so there's the lighting is, is sort of dramatic and i made it that way so that i could have this you know for formal reasons i could address the three dimensionality of the face into two strokes essentially one for the back of the head and the neck and the other one for the front so it's all about sort of maintaining this thing and you know as you mentioned before, yeah, there's a the brevity is important. I mean, it's a it's a bit of a game, but it's also interesting for me because it's a real challenge, and it's an interesting way of like recreating the painting. You can look at these paintings and remake them as you're looking at them. Well, I mean, there's Being an polemical? aspect that I I wish I would have mentioned, which which is of course in in the 1960s as Puerto Rico was was moving into an industrialized economy which happened very fast, there was also a kind of a need to sort of present a wider face that existed in that in that culture of that time. And that has been, to a great deal, been somewhat reversed in recent years. But when I was growing up, almost every show, perhaps that's something I should, maybe this is something that you might want to record or not. But yeah, shows were very uh, white. Governors were very white, are still very white. Hmm. So the leadership doesn't reflect that. And I think in some sense, the fact that we bought that European art has something to do with that. But I don't complain about it because we have great art. <laughs> it uh, it has its, um, it, it's problematic. And at the same time, it's amazing that we have it. Although one of the interesting things about that to me is that, okay, so you made a, a painting titled Dad in 2017, right. which I'm guessing is your dad. Um, no, it was my dad. <laughs> I... I think I'd recognize that person. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. There is a way in which this, these kind of portraits, the way they're painted, they act as mirrors. I mean, they're because they're devoid of certain key features, people start seeing themselves in them. And, and because they do have a kind of independent color scheme, as you mentioned, it opens even more that possibility that everyone can be sort of somehow represented in a series of portraits. Independent color scheme is a good phrase. I wish I'd used it. The art history nerd in me responds to loaded brush painting, regardless of the when. You mentioned a 19th century example earlier. Are you, have you been at all interested in 
contemporary loaded brush painting, whether that's like David Park and Joan Brown or a generation <laughs> later, Jonathan Lasker. Oh, yeah. I love Jonathan Lasker. Definitely one of my favorite painters. When I was in school, I I had a, a kind of fascination with conceptual art, but also I had a, a real interest in, in painting that was more romantic, quote unquote, and a lot of painting from the 80s that I liked. And th that was very unhip at the time. It was not, you, you couldn't admit that you like Schnabel when I was in school or that you like Basilitz or any of the, uh, the German neo-expressionists, which I did. This is the late 90s, early 2000s. And first, you know, painting comes in and out. And we were in one of those out moments. That, but in school, because it's a lot more academic, there's always a, a tendency to poo-poo that kind of romantic stuff. As far as the, uh, the brush marks, yeah, I mean... Uh, I was always attracted to the stuff, but I like, as you mentioned, Jonathan Lasker, I like that pseudo gestural thing that was always gestures in quotations. So, yeah, yeah. So, Plan, same thing planned as, gesture. Planned gesture. Lichtenstein had the same thing, but in an earlier yeah. era. Someone like Bram Bogart had that in a kind of massive, almost, you know, impressive, destructive form. That's something that I wanted to address. You know, it's a, uh, I think the kind of lyrical abstraction version of painterliness, uh, you know, feels very comfortable. I wanted a much more ridiculous, as you mentioned, something a lot more absurd to be taking place. And I think that's my way of pushing, in my own little way, pushing it forward somehow. I grew up in California, so the loaded brush painting I grew up with was really wet, really, really wet and shiny and oily and lubricious. Lasker's mannered loaded brush is dry and matte. Was there a point in your career, maybe like even when you were a student, where you thought about both those ways and had to pick one or thought you had to pick one? Yeah, I mean, the uh, I started using construction materials in order to thicken the paint when I was in school because I didn't have the money to afford gels and more conventional forms. And I knew I wanted to make these very large paintings that had that materiality. By accident, the matte rubbery finish started happening. And I thought it was fortuitous and it had a very strange look. And I agree, the Lasker paintings do have that. They feel more like, they have more like, what's the word I'm looking like, frosting-like edges. Whereas yeah, like, like these are... Like frosting, yeah. Yeah, these are a lot more... Um, I suppose they sag more and, and they, they more like blobs. And, uh, you know, that's just the, the right plasticity for me. I started using the material and I used it, used it on and off for years. And now I almost use it exclusively in the last two or three years for the reasons that I spoke about before, mm. for, because I had the space to do it properly. But it was something that I was always into. And I, I, it happened by accident. And then I kept it because I thought it separated me from a lot of people. Excellent. Jose Lerma, thanks so much. Thank you. That was great. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.